Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, as we come to your word, help us to concentrate and help us to hear you clearly. And Father, to hear you in such a way that we would understand your message, and Father, that we would believe and that we would obey. And Father, we pray these things for Jesus' sake. Amen. Uh, I do thank you so much for all the comments you put in about public meeting. That's been really helpful. Uh, one of the comments I did get back was that I used too many sports illustrations. I need to apologise about that. Uh, it's just that sports is around everywhere at the moment. At the moment. Uh, it, it's just a, such a wonderful thing when you go back home at 4 o'clock in the afternoon and from 4 o'clock until almost midnight you can watch three World Cup soccer games back to back. And then after that you have your meal break and then you watch the French Open, Roland Garros. It's great. Uh, I'm just your average bloke, so I'm sorry about that. Um, it's just that, it, did you know that 85% of men think that they're above average in sports? <laughs> think about that. Some of you might be getting up at midnight and saying, oh, I get it now. Um, but there was a time, I, I must admit, uh, that I wasn't very good at sports. And uh, it, sports was a real drag, actually. Uh, I used to hate sports afternoon in primary school. Uh, you know, when, when the PE teacher would look uh, at the class and choose one of the, the better batsmen, one of the best batsmen, or one of the fastest runners, and then choose another, and they would be the captains. And they'd be able to look across the class and choose who they want to be on their team. And at the end of every little choosing episode, there were always a few people left. Uh, there was Ashley, he was a wizard piano, uh, couldn't run very fast though. And there was a Connell, who was just an electronics whiz. And there was me, a little bit plump, couldn't run very fast, couldn't throw a ball very far, a bit uncoordinated really. And people still remember the day that it, when we were playing soccer that I struck the ball beautifully, right on the sweet spot, as fast as possible in the back of the net, except it was my own goal. <laughs> I hated that time when we were choosing teams. Well, Romans 5 in a way actually reminds me of those primary school sports lessons, but with a twist. Uh, it's clear in Romans 5 that there are only two groups of people in the world. They're two teams, if you like. Uh, but Romans 5 is not so much about choosing teams as about understanding our captains. Uh, in some ways, Romans 5, 12 to 21, is the book of Romans reduced to its most basic distinctions. Uh, when you set aside who's a Jew and who's a Gentile, and when you set aside um, uh, who has the law and who doesn't have the law, there's really only one distinction that matters. Only one distinction that matters. You're either on Adam's team or you're on Jesus' team. Your captain is either Adam or your captain is either Jesus. Once we know whose team we're on, then the rest of the book of Romans actually opens up. And in fact, our whole life actually can make sense. Now, before I go verse by verse through this passage and try to uh, iron out some of the kinks, uh, I want to say two little words of warning. And the first one is, as John read the, the passage, wasn't it hard to follow? Now that's not because John was, in a poor, was a poor reader or something like that. He read very well, but it's just one of those passages that's very convoluted. And you've got to listen to this passage very clearly. Um, there's really a couple of ways of listening, isn't there? Uh, there's a sort of listening that I, I call you know, the weather report kind of listening. You know, Sharon, my wife, uh, wants me to listen to the weather report so that I can tell her how to dress. And so I turn on the radio, I turn on to the weather report, and I'm making my, my breakfast. I go outside and get the paper, and I come back, and Sharon asks me, so what's the weather going to be? And I say, oh. Uh, they said the word showers, but I can't remember whether it was yesterday, the report about today, or what's going to happen tomorrow. 
that's the sort of listening that doesn't work for Romans 5, right? Uh, you need, I'm really going to do some thinking about this kind of listening. You've got to listen carefully. And another thing that we need to point out here is that Romans 5, we don't have a, a sort of a cool analytical thinking of a theologian or something like that, but really rather the excited gushings of someone who's actually caught up in what they have to say. Paul is so excited about what he's writing that he, he throws out the rules of grammar sometimes, and he's happy at times to use imprecise language. I think we, we tend to think of Paul as, as some ivory tower theologian who writes these essays for people to read or something. But no, no. The more I study Romans, the more I study about Paul and his writings, he's a warm-hearted man, a generous man, a man who's so rich in his language and full of passion. So, with these two warnings, let's actually work out what this says, verse by verse. And come with me to verse 12. It actually starts off with the word, therefore, which I think, uh, you know, one of the things that people say all the time is whenever you see therefore, you need to know what it's there for. But I don't think this therefore is one of the easiest therefores to work out. Uh, some scholars actually think that it's backward-looking. Some scholars think that it's forward-looking. But I wonder if it, it's actually parallel to chapter 5, verse 1, what we did last week. And remember chapter 5, verse 1, the therefore there, uh, what Paul was doing in verses 1 to 11, and what follows, is what were the implications of being justified by faith? And so I wonder if in verses 12 to 21, where he starts off therefore again, he gives us another implication of what it is to be justified by faith. And this time, the implication is, you're either on Adam's team or you're on Jesus' team. And then he begins the comparison. And here's the words, just as. Now, good grammar tells us that whenever we start off a sentence, just as, you should follow with the words later on, so then, or, or so. Right? Uh, just as Graham Chiswell loves the Soccer World Cup, uh, Michael Kwan is going to love the Rugby World Cup here in Australia next year in October. Anyway, uh, or uh, just as science students come to uni four days a week, so art students, no, that doesn't work. Um, but Paul doesn't give us a second half here, right? He gives us the just as, but he doesn't give us the so then. Uh, in verses 13 and 14, you don't see it so then. He, he doesn't do it in verses 15 and 17, the next paragraph. And what he actually ends up doing is starting the whole sentence all over again in verse 18. So we've got a beginning of a similarity, a beginning of a comparison. Uh, then we've got this big sidetrack, and we actually get back to the comparison. So let's get, back, let's get to the comparison, the similarity in verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, there's the comparison begun. Paul's mind goes back to the beginning of human history, and he writes about one man at this point, without even naming him. And he says that through this one man, sin and death entered the world, and the result was that death came to all people. Of course, he's talking about Adam, who's been told not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, but he did. He did just that. And the result, he was removed from the ideal relationship with God, and he was removed from God's place. That is, he died spiritually, and he died physically later as well. And Paul's explanation as why all people die comes at the end of verse 12 in three words. See if you can see it there. Just before the dash. Because all sinned. Now it's actually a bit hard to pin down the meaning of this phrase because uh, the translators have come to it in, in a couple of different ways. He may be saying that everyone dies because everyone is summed up in Adam's sin. The verse could actually read, in Adam all sinned. 
Or he might be saying that everyone dies because everyone sins themselves, just like Adam did. And we're going to look at that issue a little bit at the end of the, of the talk. It's a bit like this, right? Uh, imagine that Australian, uh, Australia is playing a, a test match, a, a cricket test today, and there would be two ways of knowing who batted first, right? You can turn on the TV, you can turn on the TV to, to, to the commentators and you can see Tony Gregg out there tossing the coin, and you can watch the captains call who wins, heads or tails. And whoever wins and whoever decides to bat, you actually know from that time onwards who's going to bat. You work out who's the batting team from that decision. But another way of doing it is, if you miss out the first half hour, you can look at who comes into bat. You know, you can see Adam Gilchrist coming to bat. You can see, oh, sorry, all sorts of people. Um, you, you can see Ricky Ponting coming to bat. And you know that Australia's batting. Right? And if within half an hour you see Shane Warne batting, you know that we're in lots of trouble. But um, you, you, know, you can actually work out what, which team is batting by either seeing the beginning or seeing what individuals do. I know that Australia was bad. Which is like saying we all die because each individual sin. Now I think theologically it actually makes sense that both things are true. Uh, we all die because we're all summed up in Adam's sin. We all die because we go on in ourselves to repeat Adam's sin. And the second is actually a consequence of the first. But really I think I'm getting distracted. Uh, because Paul's emphasis is not so much on explaining why, even though we're going to get back to it a little bit later, but just pointing out the brute facts that since Adam all human beings die. And so the comparison has started. He's our first captain. What's he like? Well, his name is Adam. He's fresh. He's potentially energetic. We can't find out much about his side and his background, but look at him. He's a fine specimen of a man crafted by the very hands of God. He's got the whole future before him. But the defining feature of this captain is that he doesn't follow God's instructions. He's a sinner. He's a bringer of death. Now, technically, Paul should now introduce the next captain, but he goes on an information sidetrack that takes his attention for a little while. Uh, and what he wants to do is to take a, a quick sketch of human history. And to do that, he actually puts three pegs on the ground. There's Adam, there's Moses and the law, and then there's Christ, Jesus, the one who is to come. Take a look with me at verses 13 and 14. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. You see, Paul's focus in chapter 2 to 4 of Romans has been on Jewish history and the place of law and, and Moses has in God's purposes. So he's been talking about from Moses onwards, really. But now he's got to do a bit of tidying up, so to speak, and to go back to the period from Adam to Moses. It's been clear that from Moses onwards, God has revealed a law that clearly showed where people were going wrong um, and where people failed to follow God properly. But the question is, what about the time from Adam to Moses? What about that little period of time? And Paul admits that where there is no law, technically sin can't be taken into account. And I remember once uh, some lawyers saying that their job is not to bring about justice, their job is to enact legislation. Now, that sounds a bit callous, and, I, and when I heard it, I thought, yeah, that's, that's really callous, that's cold. But in a sense, it's right, isn't it? Where there is no law, the law can't, lawyer can't do anything. A judge can't do anything. And sin, in a technical legal sense, can't be taken into account. However, Paul says, look at this period. Look at this period from Adam to Moses, and in this period before the law, whether or not there was a law, humanity was no different. And the proof of that is seen in the great universal of death. 
From Adam to Moses, people died. So the reign of sin and death was certainly at work, even if technically there was no law. Even if people did not break a specific command as Adam did. Uh, really, Paul tells us right, this right back in the beginning, verse 13, when he says, Sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. So in verses 13 and 14, Paul wants to establish that once Captain Adam made his decision to disobey God, then a reign of sin and death was unleashed that couldn't be stopped. There it is. Is that true? And you just need to look at the first few chapters of, of Genesis to see that's true, don't you? Of the spread of sin. You see that in our world as we turn to the newspapers, as we switch on our TVs. I mean, we really never think that the newspapers are going to run out of episodes of oppression or murder and corruption reports, are we? We never really think that our police are, are going to have nothing to do in our community. Or, you know, counsellors, health counsellors won't have a waiting list. Because from Adam, sin and death has been reigning. But remember, I said there were three markers. There was Adam, there's Moses and the law, and there's another. There's Adam, there's Moses and the law, but Moses to who? To whom? Well, Paul says there's another figure like Adam. Hence a phrase at the end of verse 14, type of the one to come. Uh, we just had our anniversary on Monday, and that was a great time. Uh, but one of the things that we do on, in anniversaries is give each other nice presents. Uh, and last year, in our first anniversary, uh, traditionally is known as the paper anniversary, I gave Sharon a whole lot of um, paper making stuff because she loves card making. And, and she loves cutting out all the different patterns and using these hole punches to punch out all different shapes. But one of the things that she loves doing is using these stamps to, to stamp the card, and then you put embossing powder on it, and, and then you, you heat it up, and there's these beautiful embossed images that come out. See, the word type there is a printmaker language in the original. Uh, right? The, the word is a pattern. Uh, a word is a type. A word is a, a photocopy, if you like, an impression. You have the stamp, and you press it on the paper, and there's the impression. But my problem is, whenever I come to this passage, most people that I hear say that, well, what it's saying here is that Jesus is like Adam. You see, Adam is human, and what we get is Jesus to be like Adam. Have a look at the word order there. It says, Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. Look at the order there. That is, if you want to find out about true humanity, don't look at Adam. Look at Jesus. And friends, let me do the ad up here. That's what we're going to be talking about at our annual conference coming up. And that's going to be a great time where we actually want to sit down and actually work out what is humanity all about. And we're going to discover that the great things that if you want to find out about true humanity, well, look to Jesus. Look to Jesus as the victorious king who actually rules now as the true human. But while the idea of a type or a print is a good one, Paul would say, hang on a minute, let's, let's not get too hung up about that, about the similarities between the two captains. Because the game that they actually play is actually quite different. And so now we're moving to the contrast. And that takes us back to verses 15 and 16. And 15 and 16 contain a contrasted degree. The work of Christ, because an expression of grace, is greater in every way than the work of Adam. I'll say that again. The work of Christ, because it is an expression of grace, is greater in every way than the work of Adam. Then in verses 16 and 17, there's another contrast. Uh, perhaps we can say it's a contrast of consequence or contrast of result. Adam's act led to condemnation and death, but Christ's act brought righteousness and life. Adam's act brought condemnation and death, but Christ brought righteousness and life. So we're in a realm of contrast here in this paragraph. 
Have a look at verse 15. But the free gift is not like the trespass. By the gift, Paul probably means the obedient life of Jesus so willingly lived. Uh, or the sacrificial death he so willingly suffered. The resulting resurrection life that he was so willing to share. It's about Jesus and what he did. These things aren't like the trespass. These gifts, this gift, is nothing like the cold story of disobedience and death that Adam's story tells. And Paul's language becomes now very excited. And he talks about it in the way that people die because of Adam's trespass. But the amazing way that God's grace can overflow in spite of that. And Paul is excited here because an act of generosity and grace will always be more stunning than an act of justice. And Paul builds on what it follows. God's act of grace in sending Jesus, he said, followed many sins. You find that in verse 16. God's act of grace came at a time when humanity had conclusively proven that it didn't want God involved, that he could only deserve God's anger. But an act of generosity and grace will always be more stunning than an act of justice. Have you ever seen that new show called Undercover Angels? Uh, I hope you haven't because it's on Sunday night and you should be at church. But anyway, uh, let me tell you about it. Undercover Angels is, is a show that's uh, it's hosted by Ian Thorpe or, some, or, or something like that. And, and there's these three uh, beautiful women, stunning women, who actually goes around doing acts of service, acts of kindness to people. Um, and, uh, and, and, you know, apparently everybody loves it because it's such an emotionally powerful thing, you know. People who are in desperate need and then suddenly out of nowhere comes this generous gift. Families are united. People get new makeovers for their face. Uh, <laughs> new things, all sorts of things. But they're things that people don't deserve and they get. L let me tell you another story, and it's my own story. Uh, when I decided to do full-time Christian ministry, my father didn't like that very much, being good Asian parents. He wants me to have a good job and earn lots of money. Uh, but it led to the state when Dad actually didn't talk to me for about eight months and he wrote me out of his will. And it was pretty hard. Things are a little bit better now, but it's still hard. But a few weeks ago, uh, our car broke down. Uh, we, we've got a, a, a Corolla, a car that, you know, it's getting on a little bit. The engine was blowing up, the head gasket went, and we need a new gearbox and all that sort of stuff. Dad found out about it, and he bought us a new car. Not only did he buy us a, a new Corolla station wagon, the, the newest model, he bought us the top-of-the-line Corolla station wagon. A car that's more than my annual salary. There's always something stunning about an act of generosity and grace. And the contrast continues into verse 17. If because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. The focus here, as I've said, is on results. The result of Adam's sin is the reign of death. The result of Jesus' work is the experience of reigning in life. People enter into a victorious experience of life with God forever. As Sharon and I are finding out, people love it when babies are born. And I've got this enormous list of people to call, to email, to text message uh, when the little one's born. You know, head circumference, how long they are, how much they weigh, what sex it is, what's the name, all that sort of stuff. Uh, but people are just absolutely thrilled with birth announcements. Well, I wonder if you feel the thrill of Paul's announcement. God can do something greater than see to it that sinful people die. Uh, God can actually, through selfless generosity, see to it that sinful people live. 
This is the greatest birth announcement, friends. You want to know an announcement of birth that is greater than any others? Look at this. Sinful people that ought to die are born again. Well, that's the amazing contrast in verses 18 to 19. Take us back there, uh, finally. And uh, we actually get the similarity uh, summarised there. Uh, Paul keeps his cool this time and actually writes proper balanced sentences of similarity for us. Let's have a look at it. Verse 18. Therefore, as one trespass led to the condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all people. For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. They're the two teams. They're the two captains. Two teams, two realms of living, two kinds of humanity, and two very different results. Now, as I read verses 18 and 19, some of you were probably doing the accounting thing, weren't you? And you were panicking about numbers. Uh, is Paul saying that all people are justified at the end of verse 18? I hear you ask. Yeah? Well, remember what I said about Paul using emotional language in this passage. There's no way in the book of Romans that Paul is going to teach a universal salvation or something like that. It's in Romans that he's so insistent of the hopeless state of humanity. It's in Romans that he's insistent that people believe in their heart and confess with their mouth that Jesus is Lord. It's in Romans that he urges creatures to be sent with this momentous news. And I think in verses 18 and 19, it's just that Paul is more passionate about how great Jesus' work is than he's worried about making his numbers add up or something. His big message that sin and death need not win. In the gospel, there's a victory that's big enough for all to share in if they want to. We see a victory where sin increases, grace abounds all the more. Uh, sure, Captain Adam, sure, he made a decisive impact on human history. But that's not the last word. There is another captain who can undo Adam's deathly decision. There's another captain who will win every struggle and who invites people to share in that victory. You see it there in verse 21, don't you? God has seen to it that grace will win. So that as sin reigned in death... <coughs> Grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. God has seen to it that grace will win as he declares people righteous, as he brings them to eternal life. Well, that's the end of the passage. It's 22 the hour. That doesn't mean that you'll get an early mark, though. Uh, one of the things that we want to do is actually look at this a little bit deeply. Uh, we want to look at some, one of the issues that's probably uh, uh, confounded Christian thinkers for the last 2,000 years. And it's the whole issue of freedom and responsibility, uh, the doctrine of original sin and our relationship with Adam. Uh, once again, what we're going to do here is only glossing over. You're going to have five days to be able to spend on this, on annual conference, as you dig into the issue of how we're related to Adam. What does sin mean in our life? What does freedom mean? What does responsibility mean? But that, that's what a lot of theologians get hung up about in verse 12. Some difficult ideas come there. People struggle with this idea. Because there's actually very little in the Bible on the subject of original sin. In fact, I think this is probably one of the only passages in the Bible that actually talks about it. But I want to outline for you three theories uh, as to our relationship with Adam and our relationship between responsibility and freedom. And to simplify things, because we don't have much time here, I, I want to talk to you three names, three leading proponents and I'm going to do them a disservice, and it's a simplification, remember. So if you do want to check them out, you need to check them out historically and check out what they actually said. But I'm just going to put three people up. The first one's a guy called Pelagius. Uh, Pelagius was a British monk of the 4th century uh, who was condemned as a heretic. 
Pelagius was a guy who actually emphasised freedom and responsibility. And that's a good thing to do, right? Uh, because the Bible actually teaches it. Ezekiel 18 talks about the fact that the soul that sins will be punished. That you won't be punished for someone else's sin. Your father's sin doesn't mean that you're going to be punished. You sin, that doesn't mean you're going to be... That means you're going to be punished. The soul that sins is the soul that will be punished. Paul, in fact, tells us that back in Romans chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. And so responsibility is indeed part of what the Bible's teaching. And that's why for Pelagius it was very important that uh, verse 12, the last part of it, is translated because or sin rather than in whom. On linguistic grounds, it's great. It actually works. I think it's a proper way of translating it. But what is the connection between Adam and us? For Pelagius, the point of connection is actually imitation. So you can read the verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all imitated Adam in his sin. And the point of connection is imitation. If we didn't imitate Adam, well, then we would be perfect. Uh, see, we only know about Pelagius from the writings of his enemies. Uh, and his uh, enemies actually uh, went so far as to say that uh, what he taught was that some people were perfect because they didn't imitate Adam. Now, the trouble with his view is that it really doesn't do much justice to the passage. There are no actual re references to imitation in the passage. And the whole point of the passage is that what one person did, what one man did, affected the rest. You see, it doesn't do justice to places like verse 15. For if many died through one man's trespass, how can the many die for the trespass of the one if what you mean is that many died because they sinned themselves just like the one? It really weakens the point of comparison all the way down to say nothing of our salvation. They're not being paralleled either because we only come to, save, to be saved if we imitate Jesus which is not what the New Testament is teaching. But it is attractive to our minds because it teaches the right thing, the biblical truth of responsibility. But it's a very bad thing because it teaches us that we're living in a neutral world and we're ourselves a morally neutral beings who have a choice. We can choose to go either via Adam or we can choose to go via Christ, whereas the Bible keeps on teaching us that we live under the reign of sin and death. We're not just agents, we're victims here. And so the second alternative is that of John Calvin. Uh, 16th century French reformer who actually lived in Switzerland, he emphasised the reign of sin and death. We don't live in a neutral environment. And we're not ourselves neutral being. We actually live in a hostile environment. And as the New Testament says, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers. It talks about the dominion of darkness in Colossians 1. It talks about the, prince, uh, the powers of the principalities of the air in Ephesians 2. It talks about the principalities of darkness in Ephesians 6. We don't live in a neutral world. We live in a world of hostility. And not just out there, but we ourselves aren't neutral. For out of our hearts, says Jesus, comes all manner of evil and corruption. It comes from our own selves. We ourselves are corrupted. The heart of man is desperately deceitful and wicked above all things. Who can understand it? That's Jeremiah. Jeremiah 17. So Calvin says, through Adam, all have become corrupt in nature, and therefore all sin, and therefore all die. He puts the missing piece of logic, just as Pelagius does, but Pelagius puts in the missing piece in terms of all imitate, whereas Calvin says, all inherit corruption. Adam sins, and he passes on to us the corrupt genes, and so we, we sin too. Now, the advantage of this is that it makes sense of the passage. It keeps a sense of responsibility. We still do sin in ourselves, but it allows in the reality of determinism and we're affected and influenced by our background and it makes good sense in terms of the one for the many. But the real problem is that 
he actually had to put in the phrase to make it make sense about corruption, which is actually not there in the text. He's made up the idea that we've inherited the corrupt nature, but the passage doesn't teach that. And so we come to a third view. Pelagius, Calvin, third view, Augustine. Augustine was a 4th, 5th century person who wrote against Pelagius, and like Calvin, actually emphasised the reign of sin and death in our world. But instead of talking about inheriting a corrupt nature, he actually talked about in terms of solidarity of relationships. Now, some of the followers of this school talk about it differently. Some talk about a federal headship. Some talk about a corporate personality. Some talk about a realistic union. Uh, but however it's talk about, it's the same idea. What it says is that this group is not made up of just lots of individuals or something like that. This group is a group that functions as a group. Uh, we're very big on individualism in our Western world, I think. Uh, we talk about us all as individuals. The whole group is all atomized, little units. And, uh, and, and the very name Adam, though, actually means human, humanity, humankind, man. That is who it is. It's humanity who sinned. The epistle of Hebrews talks about Levi, who, who was the grandson of Abraham, being blessed by Melchizedek. When Melchizedek blessed Abraham, he was blessing Levi because Levi was in the loins of Abraham. He hadn't even been born yet. So that in Adam, when Adam was sinning, you were sinning. That's the argument. We were doing it. Because Adam is not separate from us. Adam is us. We are Adam. Now, this, I think, makes sense of the passage. Uh, but then it gives us the problems as to the nature of our freedom, of our responsibility. And so for Augustine, he actually translates uh, verse 12, in whom we all sin, which I think probably is not right in terms of uh, literal translation. I think it says, because all sin, that I somehow go along with Adam in his sin, and I certainly show it in my life. That's just a little sketch to see some of the complexities. But once again, friends, you'll have five days to think about it and to work it out at annual conference. But I think our difficulty with the passage, yours and mine, is something that's slightly different than what we've been facing in these last few minutes or so. Our problem, I think, is that we're actually asking the wrong question. We're not letting the passage speak on its own turn. I think that's a difficulty with people like Augustine, Calvin and Pelagius. Because Romans 5 is actually not written to answer the question of what is sin or what is the relationship between determinism or freedom or what is the relationship about my sinfulness and Adam. It's actually written to show that Christ's victory is for everyone. It's for all. That's what it's written to show. That's the point of the contrast of, of, of uh, the point of the contrast in, and comparison. That is, the way in which the victory of God takes place in this world isn't by thousands and millions of individuals fighting the battle. The way in which the victory of God takes place in this world is through the one man, Jesus Christ. And you will come to victory in God when you come through Jesus. And you will not come to victory in God when you come through thousands of others. That's the point of the passage. That is, the passage is about our freedom from death. For we're all in effect in death and sin under the history and dominion of Adam and under the captaincy of death. But the tremendous news is a great release. That bondage has been broken. Death no longer reigns. We no longer need to be afraid of death. We can now look to Captain Jesus, the Prince of Life, because the victory has been won by the one man. Not by millions, but by the one who won it for us. The battle wasn't won by hundreds of thousands of individuals, but by the one. So like David and Goliath, really. Whoever wins that battle, well, their army wins. So one man has fought the battle for us. That's Jesus. And in his act of righteousness, 
we live just as uh, we live and just as in Adam's sin we die well in the last couple of minutes what are the implications well you, you know in the Christian culture that I live in I think we're often so scared of showy triumphalism uh, words like victory conqueror reign and triumph they're words that are sort of taboo sometimes and they're words that we don't use very much but I think as we read this Paul is nowhere near as cautious and I think sometimes we need to copy his pattern if I'm with Captain Jesus I'm on the winning team I've been ushered into a new creation I'm completely confident in God's love for me I'm completely sure of God's generosity towards me I'm declared fully right in the presence of God. I'm invited to share a victory that Jesus won over death. Living under Jesus' reign, his captaincy, means confidence that you're on the winning side because God's generosity to you is so lavish. It's so stunning. It's memorable. It's undeniable. It's living with a confidence that the future has been taken care of in the way that God has gifted you with a declaration of righteousness and a promise of life. Can you feel the freedom in that? A lot of us, I think, live under Captain Jesus with a weary sense of that, oh, bother. You know, sort of like Eeyore. Oh, my church is going nowhere. My Bible study sucks. My family doesn't understand how tough my life is. And our conversation get weighed down with complaining and whinging and cynicism with self-absorption. That's not to say those things don't happen. But Captain Jesus says... I'm inviting you to share in the victory. I want you to be confident that if you're on my side, I'm on your side. I'll empower you to live my way. And Paul will even to go on to say in Romans, in chapter 8, that we're more than conquerors. Isn't that amazing? Imagine how I would have felt back in primary school if the bat best batsman in primary school had picked me first in his cricket team. Me, a little bit plump, fat, slow, uncoordinated, couldn't throw very far Michael. Well, it happened. Jesus has invited me, sinful, rebellious me, to be on his team. And as I walk to stand with him, I can know that there's no doubt that Jesus' team wins. That Jesus' team finds life. Won't you come and stand on Jesus' team? Once you come and stand and be loved, be forgiven. And once you stand and be ready to live a, in a new realm of a new humanity. A life, as we discovered last week, full of peace, grace, joy, hope, reconciliation, eternity. Let's pray. Now, Father, we do want to thank you so much for the victory that is ours in Christ. And, Father, thank you so much that because of what he has done, we stand alongside with Jesus to reign the world in the world to come. Amen.